Hello there, I'm Dan Wooten. I host Dan Wooten tonight on GB News every Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm. But you can hear the fieriest moments, the best guests and agenda-setting debates at any time on my podcast, Uncancelled, with highlights from a show that promises no spin, no bias and no censorship. Buckle up. Top News Executive Mark Sharman is next to give evidence in the lockdown inquiry. So why did the mainstream media in Britain and all over the world, in fact, fail so spectacularly when it came to questioning all aspects of lockdown during the COVID crisis? And how crucial were draconian Ofcom regulations here in the UK to the apparent conspiracy of silence that developed? Well, one man who knows is Mark Sharman. That's because he's one of Britain's top broadcasting executives, having served as director of broadcasting at Sky News for five years, before eventually becoming the director of IT or director of news at ITV. And Mark Sharman joins me now. And Mark, it's such a pleasure to have you here as part of the lockdown inquiry. I know this is quite a big deal for you to come out from behind the camera, where you've been an executive in the industry for so long. Yes. But I know you want to do it because you have been so disturbed by the coverage of many of your former colleagues, the organisations that you used to work for over the course of the pandemic. So can you just start by explaining this chilling warning that Ofcom gave near the start of the pandemic and how you think that may have impacted the coverage? Well, I definitely think it impacted. Um, It's not so much an Ofcom regulation. It was advice or a warning, actually. It's like a little bulletin, wasn't it? It was was a warning to to, to basically say, do not question the official government line. Um, Now, to be fair to them, they said you can have opposition voices on, but you must, presenters must intervene if there's any danger of harmful or misinformation. and so did that essentially turn presenters at the BBC Sky News into essentially representatives of the government? Yes, I, th- I think it did. Um, uh, not just on air talent. I think, I think that warning affected all broadcasters. Um, mm. um, most of the major broadcasters followed it. And actually, it was only the one or two little smaller ones who wouldn't have that backup power who got caught. I mean, Uckfield Community Radio was censored for <laughs> putting something out. Um, but actually, I, I think what it's led to, I think it's, it's created an environment which um, will, will be, lead to the biggest assault on freedom of speech and democracy I've known in my lifetime. I've never seen um, a warning from Ofcom like that. I've never seen the broadcasters toe the line. Mm. And rather than question the government, they became cheerleaders for the government. And why, Mark? Why? I, uh, that, that is the question I always ask myself, because surely the, the job of the BBC, ITV News, Sky News, two of you know, the, yes. the places where you used to, to work, surely the first job as a journalist is to question the government and to question the official narrative. So why did they not do that when well, it, it came to lockdown? And it is the first job. I mean, we've all been trained to ask give both sides of a story and let the viewer decide. But clearly, all the way through the um, pandemic, only one side of the story was given. And the media, actually, broadcasters and newspapers, um, picked up the torch that had been 
created by these behavioral um, psychologists and created this fear, the broadcasters picked it up with relish and that they really were spreaders of panic and fear. They bought into the propaganda. They did, they bought absolutely into the propaganda and I think it was very dangerous. But I think you have to probably look beyond Ofcom and beyond this country because as you said, uh, this was a worldwide lockstep mm. um, occurrence and uh, in parallel with media, you had big tech, new media, yes. who were censoring everything. Well, I, I, mean, want, I, I want to come yeah. on to big tech, actually, yeah. because they took the lead from Ofcom to begin with, at least in the UK, and the impact was absolutely chilling because it meant someone like me who, mm. for example, started to question very early on mm. the theory that the COVID-19 had leaked from the lab in Wuhan, mm. uh, we were immediately slapped with misinformation yeah. labels. Uh, the broadcasters that we worked for would get one of these strikes, and it mm. meant that if you got three strikes, you would actually be removed mm. from the platform, be it YouTube or Twitter. So for financial reasons, no broadcasters want to be removed from, from big no. tech. So, so it encouraged a climate, didn't it, of people being ultra-cautious with what they published. Yes, and it wasn't just the media. It applies to individuals. Um, you know, this... this censoring and, and uh, banning and blacking and warnings um, go across the board. And there are, there are certain triggers, as you know, certain words that uh, will get you banned. And there appears to be a worldwide narrative. Um, on and they were taking the lead, weren't they, from the CDC and, yes, and Fauci? I mean, there is a worldwide narrative. And the big tech and media worldwide have followed it. And anybody that spoke out against it uh, was censored. Now, in big tech, it was by blocking and censoring. In our media, it tended to be by ignoring the, the other side of the story. I, mean, I know from my personal experience that um, freelance journalists were pitching stories and ideas to newspapers. Uh, people within the newspapers and within television were going in with ideas to balance, and they were being uh, shown the door. I mean, not sacked, but mm. the ideas were, were not accepted. And the same thing happened to scientists, didn't it? Yes, I mean, it you did. look at some of our eminent uh, yes. epidemiologists, take the example yeah. of Sunitra Gupta from Oxford mm. U University, mm. an absolutely brilliant woman. Well, she, she was blacklisted by mm. all of the mainstream broadcasts. Scientists, doctors, any journalists, and individuals, anybody that questioned and spoke out. And some of these people are, are eminent, as you say. Mm. They, would, they were. Um, branded as false information, misinformation, conspiracy theorists. You know, this it's so easy just to, if, if you disagree with you, you're a conspiracy theorist, you know. Um, yeah, so, they, were, so, so, they were all. So again, I, I would ask why? What was it inside the BBC and ITV and Sky News hmm. that, that made them go for the, this narrative? Was it ratings? Because of course, for a period, mm. fear really sold, didn't it? Yeah. Uh, these journalists had more power than that ever had in their lives yeah. because we were all locked in our homes and we were hanging off the every word of a COVID hysteric like Robert Peston at a press conference. Yeah. Did they become addicted to the ratings? Did they become addicted to the power? Or was there something more sinister than that? I, I think to begin with, I think probably we all believe that this, this pandemic was worse than it's turned out to be. And I, I think there was an honest feeling that they were doing right by the country to begin with. I think it's later, and particularly over vaccines, um, where the media have let the country mm. down. Um, 
you know, why would you not, not, not ask questions uh, about the government doing a, a secret deal with Pfizer that took away any responsibility for anything going wrong from Pfizer? They've given them indemnity. Why would you do that? Why would the, the um, FDA and Pfizer hide their documents and their trials or try to for 75 years? You know, these are suspicious things mm. and they should, the questions should have been asked. And of course, what we're now seeing is um, some of the documents have been released and we're seeing that the trials uh, were anything but safe and effective. Um, and at, at, the, at best, it's faulty. And at worst, it's fraud. And do you think that the media got behind a great national effort when it came to the vaccine. Is, is, is that what they thought they were doing? Essentially, we're locked down. Yeah. We need to get back to normal. Mm. The government's saying the only way we get back to normal is if we vaccinate the whole country. So yeah. we need to encourage folk to be vaccinated and feel comfortable being vaccinated. Is that what it was about? Yeah, I think to begin with, probably, and to some extent, yes, because, I mean, not every individual is the same. But I don't think you can ignore the fact that the government spent or will have spent £500 million pounds on advertising. Mm. And this was keeping newspapers Which for newspapers in particular. And a lot of broadcasters the lifeline. too. Yeah. But I'm afraid you also have to look at the ownership. Um, you know, you'll have, this is where conspiracy theory gets put all over us. But um, most of the world's biggest companies, they're owned by BlackRock and Vanguard. And that includes um, a lot of the media. Uh, Bill Gates Foundation puts a fortune into the media, including the BBC's charity. Um, the BBC's own um, trusted news initiative is a partnership between the BBC and the big tech. And of course, that's also funded by BlackRock and Vanguard and Bill Gates. So, 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 so it, you are given the fact that were... Vanguard and, and um, BlackRock also own about 35 billion pounds worth of stock in Pfizer. You know, that ownership connection is there. Now, it's not for me to say that's a connection. Mm. I don't know. I don't know whether instructions came down. But it's unhealthy, I think, that so, so much of the media is owned by the same people mm. that are driving the science, is owned by the same people that are making the drugs. Mark Sharman, absolutely fascinating insight uh, from someone who was one of the top names in news broadcasting was, in the yes. UK. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mark. Now, of course, we do give you both sides of the story here on GB News. So defending its pandemic coverage, a BBC spokesperson said, we believe the level of coverage was proportionate to the importance of the issue and the many aspects to it. Of course, though, they didn't really talk about the damage from lockdown, did they either? There you go. But it's time now for Uncancelled. And this is where Britain's top commentators speak out on controversial issues without the fear of the cancel culture sweeping the rest of the media. And as I said on last night's show, President Zelensky's decision to ban 11 opposition parties and all private TV stations was a disappointing step towards authoritarianism. And he risks losing some Western support if Ukraine ends up resembling the Russian invader. Now, that's a legitimate criticism, even though I have made clear my ultimate disgust for Putin's illegal war. So how do we ensure we still have open and honest debate about the running of Ukraine without giving credence to overly cynical views about the war? And has the government and mainstream media's dishonest COVID hysteria created such distrust among sections of the UK public 
that people are now more susceptible to Putin's propaganda. Well, to tackle this is Baroness Claire Fox, someone who has also been tackling these moral dilemmas the past fortnight. Good evening, Claire. And I really wanted to talk to you about this because I think we're in the same boat pretty much, which is that we want to be able to have the necessary debates about Zelensky, about Ukraine, about the regime without being accused of being Putin apologists. But at the same time, there's a whole other section of society who believe that this entire war should not be supported because it feels like they've lost so much trust in the authorities and the mainstream media as a result of the COVID debacle. Yeah, let's try and untangle it a little. Mm, I mean, please. we have to bear in mind that if you're in Ukraine at the moment, suffering the most intense bombardment and military invasion, that there is at least a valid reason why you might be clamping down on liberties in a different kind of a way. And although I don't want to encourage that, I think that we can't say that it's life as normal because it's not life as normal there in any circumstances. So it doesn't mean they've gone authoritarian. The second thing, though, is that we should be free in this country to discuss what we think about that. Of course, there should be, we're not at war and we have to make sure that free speech is not compromised at all in this country either by things like the ban on, uh, Ofcom's ban on, on RT, Russia Today. Uh, we should be free to have as much information as possible and we should make no compromises on that whatsoever. But, you know, your, your bigger point, which is the one that I'm struggling with, is I understand that during the, the lockdown period, there was a real abuse of what was called the war on a virus, and it was called a war on a virus mm. as well. It was a war on COVID apparently and that was used as an excuse to close down perfectly legitimate discussion and debate that we should have been able to have in the open and that made people feel very cynical about the media everything they saw in the media they knew that they would be nudged that they would be manipulated the problem we've got now is there's a real military war going on and a lot of people in this country say oh, i don't believe anything i see on the telly anymore don't believe any of that nonsense is it a war, really? I mean, the number of people who come up with such mad, I mean, some theories that do defy geopolitical reality, let's put it that way, and have bent the stick so far that they're prepared to say, oh, well, actually, Ukraine's an authoritarian country just as bad as Russia, so I'm not going to support them. And actually, this is a conflict. I mean, some people are saying it's a distraction from discussing you know, the WEF, you know, the, 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 the Great Reset or what have you. So I, I do think we've got ourselves into a real mess here because I think it's hugely important that this war is understood as being the great threat to European, any kind of uh, peace in Europe, not just to Ukraine. It's not about Ukraine and Russia. It's about something much bigger than that. So how do we deal with folk who have that level of cynicism, Claire? Because, of course... They do have reason over the past two years to have mistrusted uh, a lot of what they've been told. But you have to encourage people that mistrust, when it turns into a kind of nihilistic cynicism, that if somebody says black, you say white, is completely unhelpful to anyone. It's not, it's, it's ignorance. It's, it's not a recipe for enlightenment. We need to read more. 
We need to know more and we need to go beyond the dark web or the latest meme or the greatest, the next conspiracy theory. We need to show a bit of humility and understanding that this is part of a huge historical shift that actually many of the issues that were not resolved at the end of the Cold War are now coming home to roost. That actually the Yalta Agreement at the end of the Second World War that divided Europe into the free versus unfree East and West is what threatens us now. And that therefore we have to take ourselves more seriously and say we don't have to go nodding along at everything we see in the media. I'm not suggesting that. Be open-minded. But honestly, we make fools of ourselves and underestimate the seriousness of this conflict if we kind of, in a way, childishly say, I refuse to believe anything that I see on the BBC or read in a newspaper just because of what happened with COVID. That makes us actually the lesser. We need to be bigger than that, mm, in my opinion. I agree. And you only have to look at some of the pictures that we're witnessing now to see the scale of it. Uh, Calvin Robinson, our superstar panel earlier uh, this evening, Claire, said that he has some concern about the media's hero worship of President Zelensky. Do you? Yeah, that's a slightly different question. I mean, I mean, you know, give the guy a break in as much as in as much as he's gone from being an actor to actually showing some huge bravery in the circumstances. Yes, but I do indeed. have qualms about that. I'm also listen, I don't support Ukraine because Ukraine is a lovely country that I like all the values of. I'm fully aware of the fact that there are neo-Nazis in Ukraine because, you know, that's going to be something that's going to be tweeted at me and tell me that I don't understand anything about Ukraine. I've actually followed what's been going on in Ukraine for a long time as it happens and do know a fair amount about it. So I'm not trying to either lionise the country or um, hero worship Zelensky. But that doesn't mean to say that I don't support Ukraine. I want to make it very clear that Russia launched a full-scale invasion. And whatever one thinks about that the uh, way that the West has handled anything that happened before that invasion, I think there were serious problems with the way that NATO expansionism happened. I think the things that happened in relation to uh, mm. uh, the lack of diplomacy in the region are all problematic. And so I'm Claire not saying Fox. Ukraine's lovely, but we no. should not justify the invasion of it. That's the point. No, and you've made it perfectly. Claire Fox, thank you so much. We'll speak soon. Now, on last night's show, I dismantled the tsunami of rank Ramona hypocrisy that followed these comments by Boris Johnson at the weekend. I know that it's the instinct of the people of this country, like the people of Ukraine, to choose freedom every time. When the British people voted for Brexit in such large numbers, I don't believe it was because they were remotely hostile to, to foreigners. It's because they wanted to be free. Now, Ramona's everywhere howled an outrage at the comparison. The only problem is the same Ramona's have seized every opportunity to link Brexit and Ukraine since Putin's tanks first rolled in. Well, Brendan O'Neill says Boris was right and those fuming against him are angry because they saw that he threatened to expose their shallow, contingent commitment to the ideal of national sovereignty. As he put it in a brilliant column, actually, uh, for The Spectator, they wear Ukrainian-coloured ribbons, 
hang the Ukrainian flag in their living room windows, cheer brave President Zelensky for defending Ukraine's national identity and sovereign rights. And yet some of these people spent much of the past six years denouncing flag-waving Brits as xenophobes. And Brendan joins me now. The hypocrisy of Ramona's never ends, does it, Brendan? It never ends, and, and the hissy fits never end either. You know, another Ramona hissy fit. It's kind of a, a, an, an endless process at this point. And I think they're completely wrong about Boris's comments. I mean, the first thing to say is that he didn't actually compare voting for Brexit to fighting in Ukraine. He didn't make that comparison. All he was saying is that people around the world long for freedom, long for independence, and people in Britain, like people in Ukraine, want to be free. And then he gave our vote for Brexit as an example of our desire for freedom. I think he was completely right. And in fact, what there is in common between Brexit and the fight in Ukraine is that both of them, in very different ways, are fights for national sovereignty. We were lucky enough to be able to peacefully vote with no stress and no violence at all. We peacefully voted for national sovereignty when we voted to leave the EU. The Ukrainian people, tragically, have to fight very hard indeed for their national sovereignty. But there is a connection between people around the world who want their nations to be free. Indeed, it is about freedom, isn't it? That is fundamentally the point that Boris was making. Yeah, about freedom. And I think the reason that the Ramona elites kicked up such a fuss is because they know he has a point. They know that somewhere deep in their corroded souls, they know he has a point when he says that the vote for Brexit was a vote for freedom and the, the struggle in Ukraine is a, is a struggle for freedom. And the issue with these people is that they are currently uh, supporting the Ukrainian people, as we all should, in my view. They're supporting the Ukrainian people as they wave their flags and fight to defend their national honor and talk about their national identity and struggle for national sovereignty. They're supporting all of that, but they opposed all of those things when people in Britain argued for them over the past six years, they said you were a xenophobe if you waved the British flag, you were an idiot if you talked about something like national identity, only xenophobes really obsess over things like sovereignty. These are the kinds of arguments they were making. So their commitment to sovereignty independence is a very new phenomenon and it's full of hypocrisy too. And Brendan, remember, these were the very people, I exposed them on the show last night, the very people who, the moment the war began, wanted to invoke Brexit as some sort of failure, as, as some sort of contribution to Putin's invasion. I'm talking the Michael Hessel times, the Alistair Campbells, the James O'Brien. So it's one rule for them, another rule for Boris, apparently. Oh, completely. I mean, you couldn't make it up. They are raging against Boris for not even doing what they said he did. He didn't actually make that comparison. While these people have been talking about Brexit and Ukraine in the same breath endlessly for the past three weeks. And they've been arguing for years that Brexit was the uh, was something done by Putin. Evil Russia posted all these memes and misinformation on the British internet and made us all vote for Brexit. Or even worse, they compare Brexit to the 1930s and the rise of Nazism. You know, who could forget David Lammy saying that some of the Tories in the European research group 
are like Nazis, if not worse. You know, these people have been make, making the most insane, ridiculous comparisons between Brexit and Nazism or Brexit and Putin's Russia for a long time. So they need to lay off Boris because all he did was make a sensible point about people's yearning for freedom. It is actually they who have been making twisted comparisons between Brexit and other world events. No, it has. It has been them, and it's not what Boris did. But Brendan, I'm sorry, you can hardly say that the EU has had a particularly good war, and in fact it has been our independence, it has been Brexit that has allowed Boris to take this leading role on the world stage. And remember, he's the one that stopped the appeasement by Germany and by France in the early days of this conflict. That's right. I actually think Britain should be proud of the role it's played in supporting the Ukrainians. I think we could probably do a little bit more, in fact. I think lots of people in this country are very concerned about what's happening in Ukraine. They want the Ukrainians to win. They want them to have freedom and they want them to have peace. And Britain has helped the Ukrainians in various different ways. And we've had the flexibility to do that because we're no longer tied to the technocratic, slothful European Union, which is just bad at doing anything at all. So uh, we should really cherish this opportunity, not the opportunity of the war in Ukraine, but the opportunity of leaving the European Union. We should really cherish that as a way to assist other nations who, like us, want to be free. And I think the more we can do to help the people of Ukraine, the better. And thank God we're not weighed down by the EU. And actually, Liz Truss concerned that France and Germany already looking for an early way out, already looking uh, to give in to lots of Putin's demands. And whether that's right or wrong is a separate discussion. But the issue is, Brendan, why are they doing it? And they're doing it for pure economic reasons, because they have become far too dependent on Russian energy. That's absolutely right. And I'm really worried, in fact, by the number of people, uh, political people in the political class in Europe and journalists in the UK, the number of people who are now saying, well, Ukraine has to settle with Russia. It should probably accept some compromises. It should probably give in to some of Russia's demands, including the annexation of large parts of Ukrainian territory and the demand that Ukraine should be neutral and disarm and really give in to Moscow. That's essentially what Russia is saying. I think that's completely wrong. All of us want this war to end, but we surely also want Ukraine to remain a free, sovereign nation that determines its own destiny. And I think, as you say, lots of political leaders in Europe are compromised by their reliance on Russian energy and by the, the fact that they just cannot survive if, if Russia were to turn off the taps. And so they are driven by a pretty ulterior motive, an, an ugly ulterior motive, where they want to defend their own interests rather the, than the interests of the Ukrainian people. And we've got to get our priorities right. The important thing here is freedom for Ukraine, and that's what's got to override everything else. Brendan O'Neill, thank you so much. We'll speak again next week. Dan Wooden here again. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of my podcast, Uncancelled. Did you like what you hear? Well, remember to subscribe, rate and review and join me for more newsmaking interviews, fiery debate and free speech on Dan Wooden tonight every Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News.